five seconds to submergence. Submergence deep into the absurd. The father of Kevin thought he was. I just now started. Okay, good. All right, we got Tim on the uh, podcast. This is the father of Kevin Donahue. So uh, I'm excited to have you on. Well, nice to see you. I got this big thing saying, um, oh, I, I got this big, oh, I got to use the mouse. Sorry. Anyway, so what would you like to know? <clears throat> well, I suppose, uh, where are you from, first off? Well, well I'm from Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And um, okay. I I grew up behind uh, Hasbro, where they used to make GI Joes and uh, Mr. Potato Head. And oh, my damn. parents were my parents were mill rats, you know. And uh, so I grew up in the dumpster behind Hasbro uh, with GI Joes and uh, Mr. Potato Heads up to my neck. <laughs> so I was I was a lower middle class kid. All right. So what's it like growing up in Rhode Island then? It's like well, it's a really uh, small state. I've never been there. Yeah, it's it's uh you know I was in the industrial section. It was a bunch of factories and everything, so it was kind of depressing for me. But any chance I could, uh, we'd get down to the coast, and uh, it was just magnificent to see. Uh, you know, when you go over the crest of the hill and you see the ocean, it was always very awe-inspiring to me. You know, that moment when I first saw it. <clears throat> And so I, you know, I learned how to surf and everything. And uh, because it was, you know, kind of a nautical area, you know, Narragansett Bay, I, uh, the Coast Guard was a big influence on me because I grew up watching it, you know, yeah. <clears throat> watching the boats go in and out. So that's what brought me to uh, to join the Coast Guard when I was like 19. Oh, sweet. You know, I thought about that just because I was uh, I was a lifeguard at one point. I was like, oh, I could probably be a Coast Guard, but I never did. Yeah, yeah that's cool. You know, were you lifeguarding the pool or on a lake or where were a you? Beach. Just oh, okay. uh, like a city beach, a lake. Yeah. Where, where did nothing, you grow up, Nothing crazy. Where did you grow up? Uh, where was that? I grew up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Actually, I'm, okay. I'm there right now, so... <laughs> oh, all right, all right, Coeur d'Alene. But, yeah, I, I would. I yep. go up to Lake Lake Ponderay. I went oh, camping nice. there several times. I think I did maybe the Pack River. Is that what it is? Pack I River. Think a, I think it dumps into it. If I'm not mistaken, it was beautiful. And nice. I used to do. I used to do some kayaking. I had a an open boat. I had a twelve foot open uh, canoe at one time. A Mohawk probe. And I did the Snake River Nat a few times, and uh, oh sweet! I used to go down the Boise River. They had a little spot you could uh, practice on the Boise River. You lived in uh, Twin Falls for a long, for a long uh, time, right? Boise, Boise, and then uh, I was in the Coast Guard. I was actually the Coast Guard recruiter in Boise, Idaho, for a couple of years. Okay, and then we then we went back to Connecticut for my final thing, and that's where uh, Kevin was born. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was a, it was kind of a fateful day for me, because uh, I a, have a, a fateful had, day. Yeah, it was a fateful day because uh, I, I'll tell you the story. I had I had a brother. He's no longer with us, and uh, he suffered from depression. Okay. Yeah. And so you know how you, you get depressed, 
uh, he went out west and everything. And you know how you go somewhere, you think you're going to find it. You think you're going to, it's going to solve all your problems, right? Yeah. And and he kind of did that a couple times. He went out to Oregon. He went out to California. And it just never, you know, you can never find that peace. And so mm-hmm. uh, eventually he decides, well, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to sell some weed. You know, I'm going to grow it and sell it, right? And he started getting quite a reputation for, you know, having the best weed in town. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So one day he flies out to Amsterdam to pick up the best seeds at the time. This was a long time ago. And uh, he puts it, he cuts a little hole in like a, uh, a potato chip bag. Like there's two layers in there. So he stuck all the seeds in there. Yeah. Well, so he, he gets off, he's getting off, he's coming back to the United States and he's sitting there in front of customs and uh, he didn't know but they had already busted his apartment. <laughs> they had about a hundred plants in it, right? So they knew, yeah. you know, he was had, right? And so they're they're just toying with him. They take the the bag and they're kind of crinkling it, and they're just acting all curious and everything. Yeah. But anyway, he got busted for that, and I think he served like six months or something. And like an idiot, it's not too long, you know. No, he he got off easy on that, and then um. And then, like an idiot, he does it again later on, like a couple years yeah. later. But the day that Kevin was born, he was on the side of the road, and he was—I uh, don't know what he was doing—on the side of the road. He had a, uh, a a bag of weed, you know, that he just took out of the woods, and the cops stopped him. So he was so depressed, he picked up a uh, some uh, a pair of pliers, like vice grips, and pointed it at the cop. So they start shooting at him, right? And they're shooting holes in the old pickup truck that I uh, that I sold him. And this is while Kevin is being born. This is happening, yeah. right? And so, so he disappears. All right, he gets away. He's in a river. He's swimming down the river like a. It's like an epic movie, you know. He's getting yeah. away. They had helicopters looking at him and everything. And so he uh, he gets away for a while, a couple of days. But that's when I get the news that Ke- uh, my my brother did this stuff, and my wife knows about it. And she's sitting there waiting for Kevin to be to be brought back to us in the in, in the clothing, you know. And uh, so that's that's the day Kevin was born. That's that's what happened, <laughs> you know. So my wife never, you know, she never liked my brother after that, and uh, I could never <laughs> like. Kevin was barred from going to see him and everything. It, it was pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. Is this the same brother? I I know. Uh, I, I think Kevin has this photo of of one of his uncles. I don't know who it, who it is, but uh, it's an uncle that's very special to him. He has this photo of him that he keeps. Okay, it might have been Jimmy, but then again, okay. my other brother's pretty cool too. You know. Yeah. But he's older. He's older. He's like 70, 71 now. He can't get out there and surf or anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever surf on the West Coast? Or? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I was stationed in Hawaii, and I was stationed at Barber's Point on Oahu. Okay. And that's on, like, the west side, so they had a good break right right at the base of Barber's Point. Um, and then I used to go up to Waianae, Makaha, and then, you know, Waikiki a lot. And I did a little bit on the – North Shore, but I I wasn't that good. I couldn't go out a pipeline or anything. You yeah, know? I mean I could go out on like a if it was pipeline, maybe a three foot day, 
and I couldn't, you know, it, it was or sunset, you know, the waves would get 20 feet high. I couldn't even paddle out there. And I was too scared. Uh, the, the, the ocean's scary. It's just, it's so big. Like, I don't like it, but um, I'm a pretty good swimmer, but when I, when I'm in the ocean, it's just, it's a whole other ball game. Have you been in the Atlantic or any other ocean beside the Pacific? Um, I've been to Florida, so kind of like the Bahamas and stuff like that. But okay, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, as far as being in the ocean itself, just right. I went on a cruise once with my family in the Bahamas, but that's it. Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm still scared. You know, I'm. Yeah. I'm scared of seaweed. <laughs> I was in the Coast Guard 20 years, and I'm still scared of seaweed. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I know how it feels. I get all creeped up, but I still, I still do it. It's like touching you, right? It's all yeah, kinda... yeah. It feels like dead man's hair. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's gross. No, uh, well, unless you're wearing a, a wetsuit. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't feel it. Yeah, and I, I used to surf in the winter in Rhode Island because that's when the good waves were. So I did a lot of crazy stuff. And uh, you'd last about an hour and then you get cold and then you had to get out. You ever have any like near death experiences doing stuff like uh, that? Not surfing, but um, there was one incident. I was, when I was at Barber's Point, I was on C 130s. You know what that is? Big four engine. It's a big four engine cargo plane. Okay. It's got a it's got a ramp in the back, and you can put you can't put a tank in it, but you can put like a jeep in it or something like that. Oh, I know what you're talking about like one of those big old things that you see in the movies. Yeah, all, all the, the time. Yeah, yeah, they bring they're, they're everywhere. Navy service has them, but my base was on a Navy P3 base, which is uh, they were uh, they hunted submarines, you know. And um, anyway, one day a a Marine Corps. Uh, pilot and co-pilot took off and they were, they were flying from Barber's Point to San Diego and they had to they had to refuel several times okay because it's you know it's about 2,000 miles yeah and so they get about plane. yeah but their plane was a little A4 okay. uh, which is like a little dot it looked like a lawn dart it was a fighter plane okay. older model and yeah. uh, they were refueling and they caught on fire they looked down their wingman said, hey, you're on fire. They looked at their controls. They tried to put it out, you know, and uh, it didn't work. So they had like three seconds. Then they they ejected, okay, and they're at like 30,000 feet. And both of them ejected. And while they're still, you know, tumbling, they, they looked over and saw the jet explode, okay? Oh, wow. And so they had – and so what happens is when you, uh, when you eject, your chute doesn't open right away when you're at that altitude. Yeah. You have to free fall to you down to 10,000 feet and then you shoot opens. Okay. And, and that way there, if you're in a thundercloud or something like that, or you know yeah. whatever, you get right down as fast as possible. Yeah. So they get down, they get their shoot opens. Okay. But when, when the guy, the pilot shoot opens, he had his arms uh, stretched out because his uh, ejection seat was tumbling. So when the when the chute opened, his his shoulder got dislocated, and they both ended up in the water, and the waves were about fifteen feet. Okay, and they got separated. So then the Air Force was following with a, another plane, a C one forty one. It's like a big jet. 
a big cargo jet. So they sent in two Air Force pararescue men to parachute out to go try to help this guy get in this little two-man raft or little one-man raft. He, he All he could do is hold on to it with his good arm. So the pararescue men, you know, hit the water, and they all got separated. And, and one of the pararescue men disappeared, okay? Okay. So to make a long story short, we had to fly out four hours from Oahu to get to where they were, and then we had to fly four hours on scene for two days. And every uh, service had a plane out there, like the Coast Guard would send one, then the Navy would send one to relieve us, and then the Marines would send one, and the Air Force. And everybody took turns for that four hours to locate and relocate these guys by dropping smokes. And so what happened is um, they got a tanker to come along and pick them up after two days. And we dropped them rafts, bigger rafts and all that stuff. But I was on the flight that went to look for the last pararescue men. Okay. And he was lost. Okay. So we flew out there and we go down to like 500 feet and we decide we're going to shut off two of our engines. And that gives an, an extra half hour of fuel. And so we shut down the engines and we searched for four hours uh, we don't find anything. We're, we're going to be the last plane out of there. So before yeah. we before we go up, we we lowered the ramp and had a little ceremony, you know. And uh, we dropped the wreath and stuff. And uh, it was kind of a solemn moment. But anyway, we, we start back up and we go to start these engines and we smell smoke, right? And one of the engines uh, won't start. So now we're on three engines, which is fine. You know, it's Wait, a tough. So you're in the air truck. right now, and you're yeah. on three engines. And there's four, right? The and which fourth one's would, not working? Yeah, the fourth one's uh, not working. Okay. So we have have to transfer fuel to the good engines, okay, from the bad. Yeah. But so we we flick on the switch, and we smelt smoke. And what happened is it was a, it was like a cleaning rag stuck in the pump. What, what ended up happening so we tried a few times we smelt smoke it was overheating so we couldn't use that good one quarter of our fuel we had to dump it over the side okay it goes out a tube at the end of the wing so we're still like uh four hours from our home base and we knew that we weren't making it back you know yeah and uh i mean we just weren't gonna, weren't gonna have enough fuel and uh so we're gonna have to ditch and it was going to have to be at night. And we discussed actually parachuting and, and doing different things because we used to still have parachutes back then. But we decided we're going to ditch and we're going to stay together and, and get out the hatch that's above the wing. There's a hatch up there. And then you pull a uh, thing and you get your life raft, right? So we start up and we send the mayday. And uh, we're trying to get a, a plane to come and be there and rendezvous yeah. where we're going to have to ditch, you know, and it, and it was going to be an hour from uh, Hilo. It was, we diverted to uh, uh, the big Island and we were going to have to go to Hilo instead. And so we were fighting a, a headwind. Like we, we often ride into the uh, jet stream and the jet stream yeah. was 120 miles an hour. And on the way out there, it was pushing us out to sea 120 miles an hour. So we we're going 120 miles an hour faster. So we had to get up in that jet stream 
and then we had to fight it, okay? And we had to fight it, fight it, fight it, and that that was going to cause us to ditch. Hello. I don't hear I'm you yet. All right. Can you hear me? Yep. Sorry about that. My girlfriend, uh, she was going on uh, standby at work, so she just got called in. Okay. Um, and I was currently podcasting in the in my closet, so she had to change and whatnot. Um, okay, I got you. All right. All right, but uh, they got you only have three engines. You're getting you're trying to rendezvous or rendezvous with the people who are gonna come get you when you evacuate the plane. And we're flying over the ocean right now, and right. you're about to go down, and the wind okay. is pushing back. Okay, so the pilot is talking back and forth to the navigator, and the navigator's job is to every fifteen minutes to uh, to calculate what the wind is. Okay, so yep. that they can plug it into the next leg and, and fly it into the next leg. Okay, so the pilot calls back and says, "Well, Joe, the Zell, uh, what's the wind doing now?" And he says, "Well, it's down to just above a hundred. He said, "Very well, that's going to put us where? Well, maybe sixty miles offshore." Well, you know, that's better than 100, you know. Yeah. And so every 15 minutes, he'd, you know, do the same thing. Uh, navigate a pilot, where were we at? And he says, well, it's down to like 90. And then at 15 minutes, go down. And then it's down to like 80. And, and then every 15 minutes, and it gets down to, I think it ended up at like 60, which which made it so we, we could just make it to near the shore, okay? Yeah. And that would have maybe got a, a sheriff's boat or maybe even some fishing boat out there to help us out, you know. And we figured we'd, you know, ditch along the shoreline. But we, we get closer and closer, and then it becomes like, hey, we, we might actually make it, you know. And yep. so the, pi the pilot was a really uh, experienced guy, Kodiak, you know, Kodiak pilot. You had to be above and beyond it to do that. And uh, he got us into some sort of approach i think it was steeper than uh normal when you when you think you're going to lose an engine so you don't end up in a subdivision you know you can still glide in type thing it, it was just there's certain approaches you know angles so he got he gets it in this approach and we're high enough and we just greased it into hilo airport on fumes and uh those pilots pilot co-pilot got out and they kissed the ground it was that close yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, amazing. And then, yeah. That's about the closest. Uh but I got, you know, a bunch of helicopter sea stories of people that I yeah. know, friends of mine. I was in helicopters for about five years too. So Yeah, helicopters are, are weird to be in, like compared to a plane. It's just so much more <laughs> uh it it just it feels it, it's it's a different feel. Like I don't know how yeah. you would describe it, but I mean, you're feel, you're a lot more open in a helicopter. I feel yeah, like yeah, yeah, and there's a lot more moving parts that can go wrong real yeah. real quick, and you know you can't get you can't get home if uh, something goes wrong. And, yeah, and if and an was, engine goes down a plane, it still can glide, but a helicopter right. is going down. <laughs> you're gonna go down. Yeah, right. yeah. There's a thing called the auto rotation. You know, where you can. You know, as long as your road ahead's okay, and you can yeah. pull it up at the last minute and land kind of at forty miles an hour, but you're still in the ocean, and what do you do then? You know. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, you're going to die. It's what's going to happen. You're going to suffer for a while. And yeah, I always, I always thought it'd be better off not even to have a survival suit on. Just to, you know, I don't want to flail around in thirty degree water. Yeah, you but know. I mean, you know, you hear those stories about guys just like traversing the like being in the ocean, just their body and surviving for like what, like thirty days or some shit. Right, right. It, yep. And uh, I've I've had a lot of uh, experiences. I I was stationed with a couple of guys that uh, well, all of these guys. One of them was in a helicopter. Uh, there was a father and son in a boat, and it hit rocks. It was off of uh, Alaska, and the yeah. waves were like 20, 25 feet high. All right, so the the helicopter takes off out of Sitka, and goes over to him, and they're trying to lower the basket out to him, but the the, the wind was blowing sixty miles an hour, right, like hurricane yeah. force. So when you lower the basket, it's got a lot of, you know, wind. You know, it, it just takes it. So it was sailing back toward the tail, you know, and it was kind of threatening to wrap around the tail so they had to send a swimmer in and he jumped in and he lost his mask and snorkel uh right away so so the uh the ice is got in his eyes you know and then they dropped the hook to him and he can hook himself on there with a harness and they were dragging him through a wave and a big wave hit and they thought they killed him you know they yelled out <laughs> we killed the swimmer you know and uh and then they were trying to you know you know, locate these, this father and son, and they were having a real tough time. You know, they were dragging the swimmer at the same time. They were, uh, you know, they got the, uh, father and son, but the, the mother of the kid, she, they lived on a, like a dock and she heard all this stuff on the radio. It, it's a common frequency. And so she, um, called all the other, uh, fishing villages around there, all her friends and said, Hey, pray, uh, you know, this is, this is serious, you know? And so, uh, you know, she was, I think she was even talking to her husband at one time. I don't know if he had a little radio or whatever. And, um, but anyway, they were running out of fuel. They were going up and down about a hundred feet that they were getting buffeted by big waves and they could not, they, they located the father and son, but they couldn't get steady enough to lower the basket okay they couldn't do it and they were just about to have to leave them all to die because once you run out of fuel you hit bingo you have to leave no matter yeah. what the situation is doesn't matter what yeah. and so they were at bingo and uh the pilot looks over his shoulder and there's a jump seat between them it's a big helicopter kind of can land in the water he looks over yeah. his shoulder and he, he sees something sitting there you know right <laughs> and you don't know what it is, but there's somebody sitting there. And so all of a sudden, things got a little calm. And, and it felt like there was three sets of hands on the controls. And yeah. they managed to, you know, just get them just in time. And, and they landed on fumes, basically. You know, and, and the guy, the, the pilot became a minister after that. He, he retired and became a minister, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I got another buddy, um, Commander Walters. I'll send you a picture of a helicopter with me and him and all that stuff later on. But uh, uh, they had a similar situation. A fishing boat was sinking, and they went over to it, and they dropped a basket 
and it got wrapped around the rigging. And what happens is, you know, you, when that happens, you have to uh, let out all your uh, cable. You know, you don't want to, you don't want the thing to snap. Okay. But it snapped anyway. They couldn't, they couldn't get it out fast enough. So the cable snapped. So the, uh, the flight mic had to get the cable up and they have to cut it and then weave it through like a hook. It's like a plate, but you, you weave it through these holes and there's a hook on the bottom. So once you do that, you get another hook. It's like a standby hook. So he lowered the basket down again, or he lowered the, uh, something else down again. And uh, that thing got tangled up too, okay? And so they had to shear it. This time, they didn't have enough to play out, so you, you hit a button, and it cuts the cable right at the right at the uh, spool on the top. And so they had no choice but to land in the water to pick them up. But the problem was it was at night, and the waves were 25 feet again, you know? And so, and as the, as the two fishermen was coming up the wave, they only had like a couple seconds on top of the wave to land and then try to pick them up. And then if they didn't have them in, they had to lift up again, you know? And each time the wave would go by, they, they made about five attempts. And what they do is they lower a platform. So you can go out on a, a platform. It's about three foot that sticks out, kind of lays flat against the water. And you put a, uh, a gunner's belt on and they couldn't get these guys on because they weighed about 400 pounds each in their, in their suit. And so the co-pilot had to come from the co-pilot seat. He had to come and join all the other three guys to get these guys on. And, uh, they, they just, they got it just in time. Also, they were out of fuel and they landed and they just had to find a place on a beach and, and there's no beach there. You know what I mean? You've seen Alaska just go, goes down into yeah. the water but yeah. for some, some reason they just found a little spot a little sandy spot and they, they were able to land on it so yeah it, it's crazy and, like uh, shit like that like actually happens you know just all these uh really close calls with that right yeah and, and and the funny thing is like everybody has had that type of experience if you've been around especially in aviation but yeah. There's, there's no, like, um, I don't know, there's no uh, explanation for it, okay? It's not a mathematical thing that it should have happened. It, it just happens, and you, you got to wonder why, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But I when I joined, it was 1977, so a lot of people that were in aviation at the time were prior service. You know, they were Vietnam era guys, you know, they had been in maybe eight years. So on that one flight that I was on, we almost ran out of fuel. The uh, flight mechanic named Willie Williams, he had been at uh, Vietnam at Quezon. Okay. And it, I don't know if you know about that. It was the Marines were getting overrun. Okay. okay. And you, you couldn't land. I mean, if you came out of your, uh, your foxhole, they were digging that the Viet Cong were digging holes and tunnels under the base and just popping up everywhere. Okay, it was that bad, and the weather was getting bad. And he had to land on the runway. I mean, on the tack. he landed on the runway, and then they come around and they kick pallets off and stuff like that. At the same time, like injured Marines would jump on, and even some deserters. You know, some Marines would just deserted and chickened out would get on the plane and they weren't getting off. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was bad. So 
he was on the taxiway and he had to, he was going to turn to go back on the runway to take off. And he was stuck there because there was a couple planes in front of him. And all of a sudden he seen a, a mortar land off his left wing. And then the next one landed on the right wing. And he knew the third one was going to hit him, you know? So he, he reached up and he grabbed the, the throttles and he shoved them forward and the pilots are looking at him like, you know, what the hell are you doing? And he says, we're getting out of here. And he just pushed it and, and the tail just cleared and the thing hit. And uh, yeah. so that was our lucky uh, flight engineer that day, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had another guy I used to fly with uh, when I first came in. He he was a helicopter pilot. He was younger than you. You know, he's, he got shot down five times over wow. vietnam and uh then it was a navy seal really cool guy he was a teacher at uh aviation school and uh electronic school and uh he was in the mekong delta and he told us at one time it was like christmas eve they had to swim under the river bank and then up into the cave and uh you know try to find people and stuff and he he saw this thing on the table and it was a life magazine, you know? And he says, oh, man, it's Christmas, man. I feel good. I got a life magazine. But the only problem was it had Jane Fonda was on the cover. <laughs> I don't know if you know about <laughs> Jane Fonda. She was like, you know, like Jane. Yeah. She was like a protest. She was a big actress. And she was it, actually it really good. Yeah, she went to Hanoi and everything and was oh, filmed wow. like in, a, in an anti-aircraft gun, you know? In, in North Vietnam. So it didn't go over well with the public, okay? Yeah. And she married Ted Turner. She ended up married to Ted Turner from CNN for a while, you know? Oh, wow. Anyway, yeah. So you've seen all these, like, are you hearing all these stories of uh, near-death experiences and all this stuff? Um, are you spiritual or religious at all? Yeah, I'm, I grew up Catholic, you know. I uh, went to okay. Catholic school. Irish nuns, you know. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I just didn't square up with that uh, relationship to, yeah, you know, God, let's say. Right. And, but I, you know, I mean, because I, I don't think that's it anyway. And I don't, you know, but I, I, I am spiritual. You know, I guess I pray, you know, and uh, yeah. and I kind of and we, you know, we sent the kids to Catholic school. Kevin went to Catholic school and all that, but he was never, you know, I, you know, a devout Catholic. My my ex used to drag us into Catholic school. I mean, a uh, church. You know, <laughs> you know. Okay, and I used to dress up. And, you know, do that thing just to yeah. you know for the, you know whatever. But I wasn't really into it. You know, that, yeah. that relationship anyway. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, how have you like throughout your life? You know, like uh, Kevin, he's very spiritual. Right. He's in the Buddhism, yeah. he's in the Taoism, um, mm-hmm. Christianity a little bit. You know, he's very uh very spiritual, introspective guy. Like right. what do you think you've done to like kind of mold him into that kind of person in a sense? Well, maybe just talk to him about what I, I thought uh God may be or what the whole yeah. thing, you know. And, and we talk about it. I take him up to uh I actually own the it was a dry farm. It was above Idaho Falls. I mean, it had an expansive view of the valley, and um, it was 480 acres. It was beautiful. But we had a little, uh, a little 
cabin I built out of old scrap wood. And I called it Tim Zinsky's cabin after Ted Kaczynski's cabin. You know, it's kind of like a, <laughs> yeah. it was that size. I'll show you a picture. <laughs> You'll see it. But we used to go up there all the time. We used to talk about stuff like that, have fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, like, I could afford charcoal and everything, but I never, yeah. I never brought charcoal. We always used to gather wood, make a fire. And uh, yeah. then we always used to put potatoes on the fire and I'd bring some butter and salt and pepper, you know, and that was our, that was our ritual, like from gathering the thing. And then uh, I, with Kevin, I'd give him like a lighter. I'd stop at the, uh, the you know, convenience store. And I'd get him a, each a box of stick matches and I'd get him a big yeah. lighter, right? <laughs> because I'd be out there smoking weed trying to get away from my ex-wife, right? <laughs> so I, I'd be smoking a little few puffs off that and I could keep them kids uh, occupied for hours with a box of uh, stick matches. And they, they never, you know, I was watching them and everything, but they never got burnt or anything like that. I wouldn't let them, yeah. I wouldn't let them melt plastic wiffle bats like I used to do at his age, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we used to burn our army, our pl plastic army men and everything, but I, I'd never let them do anything, you know, crazy shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we, you know, we talked about a lot of things like that, and and I understand where he's at and everything, and I think he's going to do uh, a lot of good for a lot of people. And uh, but as his dad, I'd wish he'd like hurry up a little bit. But uh, right now, it's like maybe you can't hurry. Maybe you got to do one thing uh, first, and he's going to go visit my family in Rhode Island for a few weeks, and then he's going to chill out and go to. Uh, um thailand yeah. yeah and i have an affinity toward the philippines you know so i'm gonna probably be over there next year i might just totally retire i can i can retire next june from the uh you know my social security so oh, uh, nice you know that's like four grand i can keep i can keep him and his brother <laughs> you know fed over there you know what i'm saying like you know with that much we could we could live over there if we had to. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. But I, yeah. I think what he's onto now is pretty good. It's some kind of, um, kind of hypnosis based, um, therapy. And, uh, I, I, I think he could do a lot with like maybe LGBTQ kids who are kind of struggling with what's going on. Cause he's got kind of a more, uh, kind of a sane approach to the thing. I think, you know, yeah. And um I think you know, he could just help counsel some kids who are going through a lot of trouble. And if he if he had that, you know, hypnosis type thing, you don't have to be a licensed counselor. You know, people would just come to you for like a life coach, you know, you just yeah. call yourself something else. So Not I I don't have any problem. Um, I definitely do think Kevin helps a lot of people, um, like mentally deal with stuff. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, including myself. But uh, um, so yeah. like growing up, did you ever have any like experiences that led you to like think in the way that you do about life and death and all that stuff? Um, you know, nothing. Um. In particular, I don't think just, uh, you know, 
maybe the basic foundation of, you know, the Catholic nuns, you know, uh, they were, they were tough on me. You know what I mean? They were tough on people. They made you learn, you know? And so it gave me a, you know, a sense like uh, everybody gets along better if there's some sort of law and order. Uh, but I'm, I'm a libertarian totally. And, um, I'd really like to see uh, Robert F. Kennedy uh, get in, to be honest with you. Uh, I know they're trying to stifle him, but uh, he's on every alternative podcast out there right now. And Robert uh, F. I think Kennedy. if they just let him speak, you know, without Robert F. Kennedy Jr., you really have to uh, listen to this guy. He's the son of Bobby Kennedy, who got shot in 1968. Okay. That was the same year. That was the same year Martin Luther King got shot. Okay. And Robert, Robert's like, he's not a, a whack, a whack, um, you know, environmental wacko or anything, but he's an environmentalist. Okay. He started a thing called the River Keepers, which yeah. uh, it, it was founded in the Hudson River to bring back the fishery. And when he started it, the Hudson River was a cesspool, you know, and, um, he, he had a bunch of boats, you know, people would volunteer. They go out in their own boats and they take samples outside of factories and stuff. And so he became a lawyer, an environmental lawyer, and he sued all these companies along the Hudson and, and everywhere else along the water. And he got, you know, he, he brought the fishery back. Now there's commercial fishing again. And um, he also sued people like Monsanto over, I think he was involved in the Roundup suit and oh, okay. uh, you know different things like that yeah, so, so he's about. going against he's going against all these big companies that were that usually a politician has to bow down to and shut up to because they need their money to uh you know it's, it's, it's you know to keep going you know in that endless cycle but he doesn't need any money he's got a he's got his endowment and everything else he doesn't need money you know yeah, yeah. I mean, large corporations and um, the the government itself would all kind of lose money from a libertarian president. Right, right, right. And he's also against the war. You know, the Ukraine fiasco, which is a total disaster. And you know, and um, you know, he he said he would have secured the border. You know, but there's things you can do with the border. Um, like I, I was up in North Dakota. I used to run an oil truck up there. I, I haul crude oil. That's what I do. And so I used to have a truck up there. And I used to have this old piece of junk trailer. And my mechanic was Mexican. He had lived in both places. And I needed a, a mechanic up there. It was boom town. It was like 19, uh, 2012, you know, something like that. And it was booming up there, you know. So he had these three uh, illegal aliens that he worked with. They worked on his pipeline crew. They were burying pipe, you know. And he was the yeah. welder, and he knew how to work the trenches and the backhoes and all. So they, they they paid him a lot of money. So I needed him right there in case my truck broke. So I, I you know, he got these guys, and they, they lived with me. So I had, like, three illegal aliens living in my trailer for a year. You know, I was eating Mexican food, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, Andrew... <laughs> He was he was like their mother, you know. He was the yeah. the matriarch, really. He cooked for them and everything. They were like twenty year old kids. So it, one of them looked just like Kevin. He spoke perfect English, and uh, and you know, 
so those kids they were they were making like two fifty a day, and they were sending all their money home. Okay, and I I thought that's the best aid you can possibly give somebody is is the, the money goes right to the family back there. Yeah, and and you know it, it just uh, kills me that they can't like get a work visa and start working instead of putting them up in hotels and crazy stuff like that. You know. Yeah. It's like you know. Well, it's just like why can't we all just if there wasn't a government. Right, then people could anyone could just walk, go across the yeah. border, and work wherever. But at the same yeah. time, without a government, there's also less order, and it's like, right? I don't know. Talk, I, I like I like yourself that. against big enemies, big empires. Right, and you know, I I I'm okay with all that. I like social security. I you know, I like food stamps and all that. I mean, there's people, my sisters. We're on food stamps when the kids were young, but now now they're wealthy, you know. Yeah. They just went through a little stage, you know. And how do you yeah. afford? How does anybody, like a single mom or something, afford a kid nowadays? No way, you know. You're gonna yeah. need some help. Um, but yeah, I like to see, like, yeah, just apply to get a work visa, man. Just get a physical. Make sure you don't have any bad disease and and not a criminal. And just you know, if there's somebody. If there's a job waiting, that's what they do in Canada. It, you know, I knew a Filipino girl who got a job as a caregiver, you know, like an old folks home. And then she kept her nose clean for four years. She applied for her husband and her kids who were high school age to come over. And now they're like the, the Canadian dream, that, you know. Yeah. And it just was a logical, like orderly way. And then, you know, I'm sure they still send money back for the family and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So we could do that, you know, we could do a lot better. Yeah, it is weird, like how hard we make it. I guess not we, but the government makes it for people to get a visa here or a citizenship. Right. Or even I have a, a buddy, it's going to take like seven years. It's like a seven year wait list or something like that. Oh, just to get here or just to. Is, is yeah, that Miguel? Well, just to be a citizen. Oh. No, no, no. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, it's a, uh, it's a friend of mine from work, but right. Yeah, it can take a long time for you to become a citizen, especially like depending on what country, as well. Right. Like limit. Yeah. There's limits depending on the country, which is even weirder. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Because I work with all. Uh, I'm in the oil field, so in North Dakota, I work with uh, like. The trailers I was with, I knew everybody. It was like three in a row. So we had guys from like, uh, you know, West Africa, North Africa. We had we had one guy from Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, everywhere. You know what I mean? And all the Mexicans. You couldn't you couldn't have done the oil field then. You can't do it now in West Texas because I I was in West Texas last year. You know, and you just can't do it. There's not enough people willing to. To do that stuff. Yeah. And the thing is, they, they make a lot of money. Like, if you own a truck, I mean, I got two buddies, Ali and uh, Noah from uh, Liberia, and they own a truck and they make, you know, 800 bucks a day uh, hauling crude oil in uh, Louisiana and Texas, you know, because they own their own truck. And and so everybody's equal, you know what I mean? And, yeah. You know, and they come here and they're not, they're not screwing around, they're not committing crimes. 
and, and uh, you know, they fit right in and they assimilate. That's the other thing. If mm-hmm. the way we do it, we pack them into like Minneapolis and then we give them welfare and then, then they, they have no reason to assimilate because they have an underground economy, whether it be, you know, drugs even or whatever. Right. And so they, they're on the lamb, you know, they get money from the government. Plus they got their underground thing. You yeah. got no reason to assimilate or learn the language or anything. And, uh, but, but if they have a job and they're out in a oil field or something, they're interacting and they find out that, you know, old white guys like me don't treat them like any myth they had in their mind is dispelled immediately because you, you were friends yeah. immediately, you know, and, you know, we're joking around with each other and, um, especially the West Africans, a lot of them that were, uh, uh, you know, colonized by the British, um, yeah. they have that, that edgy, um, uh, kind of sense of humor, you know, that British kind of sense of humor. Yeah. And they, it's almost like a rap cadence, you know, they can eat, they can go back and forth with you, like at a rap pace, like busting each other's chops. Like, yeah, I can hardly describe it. Same thing with the Jamaicans, you know, in, in Barbados, those guys in the Caribbean. They they have this thing where they go back and forth. They, they it's like a rap thing, but it's actually uh, you know, making fun of each other type thing too, you know? And and you're throwing you're throwing barbs back and forth uh as as fast as you can, but they get it. And they you know, they're 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 funny, <laughs> Yeah, well I've well I feel like people like think of America and it's like, you know, that's where you can go to work hard, make money basically. Work hard, make money, be free. Yeah, sort of a deal. So, yeah. like, with that kind of thing spread, like, people who don't want to do that probably won't be as interested in coming here. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll work out though. Like your your generation, yeah. a lot of people say you're not going to make it or anything. I, I think you're going to make it just fine if you can get past this debacle. <laughs> if we can get past Ukraine, which is not going good. Okay, this is not going good at all. I think it's going to be a, I think we're going to look at a, a, like a grid failure. And I was in the Texas grid failure two years ago where where it got real cold and it just got too cold and pipes burst and everything. And like, we were down to the last like thing. If like, you have to have something powered up like a gas plant or, you know, something powered up in order to uh, keep the grid going. But if they totally shut it down, it takes about six months to get it back going, at least. And that's if it doesn't fry all the transformers. And uh, we were that close. We were back. We were down to one thing uh, to keeping us from having six months. But let me tell you what happened is uh, you had no water. There's no way to get water. All the pipes froze, but all the water plants shut down, like the freshwater plants. Oh, yeah. So if you don't have a river or something, you know, you're going to run out of water in uh you know, like real quick. How much of Texas did that um, affect? Do you remember? Uh, the, pretty much the whole thing because our grid was, oh, uh, wow. we have a independent grid. And I used to think that was good, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that it was uh, isolated from the rest. I thought that was a positive thing, but apparently it wasn't because otherwise they can yeah, do, do some stuff outside and connect it and get it going, you know. And, uh, yeah, because if it's, yeah, that, that makes sense because if it's connected like way across yeah. the entire grid, like 
say if we had a connection across the whole country, you couldn't destroy all the country's electricity, so you could easily hook it up. Yeah, yeah, you can get it back, or or the the surviving places can um, you know help the other ones. Yeah. Like during hurricanes and stuff, one of the contracts I can get is they send trucks like mine that can pump like. I can put diesel fuel. I could put uh, jet fuel. You know, I've hauled all everything in my tanker that I have, and so we go to places that have have a hurricane. So we just sit there. We'll bring a a truckload of diesel, and they pay us about twenty four hundred bucks a day just to sit there. And I'd get seventy percent of that if I went there. But I'm I'm so busy here that they, they wouldn't send me. But that's one of the things we do. So like we're we're poised to. Uh, you know, help out in other areas that, that get shut down. But I think it's going to be big. I think it's going to cat it. And, and I think what, what's going to happen after that, though, if it happens, and I hope it don't, is that your generation's going to wake up, all right, and you're going to get mad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because most of your kids your age have no, like, clue as to, that kind of picture is going on okay you know what i mean a lot of them do but a lot of them don't have like what's really going on politically as far as you know that and um i think once you do wake up then uh you're gonna settle you're gonna solve the whole thing i think we'll always be a beacon of uh hope you know um i don't see as you know collapsing like that uh, not with the way the kids are, I, but and also I think they're going to be less material. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to reject the whole thing. It's depending on how bad it gets, they're going to. Um, they even say it's going to be more like communist or socialist, but in a real sense, not not in the oligarch way where you know, yeah, everybody at the top gets rich and everybody at the bottom is is suffering. It's not going to be like that. Um, so I have hope that everything will be okay. Yeah, um, well, I mean, you just got to hope that people, you know, just stop trying to control everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Power, power control. Like, I believe in trusting the science, you know. And that's what I like about Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. He's like, you know, trust the science, you know. He got he got kicked off of Instagram. He got kicked off of Twitter. He got kicked off of all of them because, you know, the guy, he cites studies. You know, he doesn't just start blabbering some right-wing uh, talking point. You know what I mean? He's, he's, that's not what he's like. He's, he's an environmental lawyer who sues people like Monsanto over, you know, studies. And he was a big, you know, he has real concerns with vax, vaccinations in general. And... um but he feels that he's been injured, like he has a, a speech impediment. He has some kind of condition. It sounds like, I'm not sure. It's, it's almost like multiple sclerosis. So he's tough okay. to listen to. So if you, you really got to listen to the guy. Just try to get on and listen to his uh, acceptance speech. That would be a good start. And then maybe tell your friends about him. Um, but he, he backs up everything with a study and He's so knowledgeable, he just rattles off every study and every, you know, Nobel laureate that, that wrote the report and everything. He, and um, it, so I, I like the guy. I trust the guy, you know, you know and he's not a Trump. He, he's going to 
you know, I think he's going to be concerned about people genuinely, and he'll probably try to solve the immigration thing in a humane way, like maybe the way we, you and I just discussed, maybe maybe we get these people work visas and let them work and, uh, until they get their case figured out, you know. Because once you have them here, like it's one thing to invite them here like we did, like reckless, but once they're here, you know, you got to take care of them, right? I mean, not 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 you got to take care of them by spending money. You just got to get out of their way and let them let them go to the job that they want. Um, like in Florida, you know, they want to work. They, who builds the houses? They build the houses. That's that's who builds the houses, right? And so let them go there. You know, let them learn a skill. You know, and um, you know. And they make they make money when you're working construction. If you know how to do tile or something, they're not gonna they're not gonna work for you for seven bucks an hour. You know, they're not gonna. It's like picking watermelons or something. They're not gonna do that. It's about twenty five bucks an hour at least. Your yeah. dog likes this thing. Too. He's relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of dog is that anyway? I'm not the Great yeah. Pyrenees. Oh, Pyrenees. Oh, oh, is it really? Yeah. Yeah, it's like half. Um... Like Austinian Shepherd or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a uh, next to the farm. We had a sheep. You know, the guy did sheep, yeah. and he had those guys from. Uh, I don't know if they were from Peru. You know, this, and they had that covered wagon that it wasn't canvas, but it was solid. They had a, a wood stove, and I used to go up there and talk to them. And they had a couple of great Pyrenees that just lay in the snow all day. I mean, it'd be twenty degrees yeah. or cold that they just lay on the snow and you you look at them and say man you're like five miles from your house and they're just laying there you know just chilling out yeah I mean, we need an ac unit just for her so <laughs> oh i bet yeah i see i see she's right in it that's why she's right there we love this ac unit yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right yeah well it, it, it's actually my girlfriend's dog but oh that's cool yeah so what do you what are you planning on doing? What's your next move? What are you gonna do? Oh, in life? Yeah. I'm kind of just uh, working right now. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, I have a. But yeah, I mean, like as far as the podcast goes, just mm -hmm. probably just keep doing stuff like this. Uh, All movies, right. Things like that. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to feel like you got to post this. I don't want to ruin your career out of the gate. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe put a few highlights or something. I don't want you to mess you up too much. But I know there's a few people who probably know, want to know who Kevin's dad is, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did. And his mom was uh, special, too, and that's who I credit with uh, keeping their, their stuff together, you know. Because yeah. we ended up getting divorced, but, you know, she had it all organized. When we had a business, she had it all together. Um, I was, I was there. I could create some, something, you know, I got the financing together. I put it together and I, I kind of steamrolled it through and I, you know, I could get the people that it was doing loans. So I got them to think about their loans a, a different way and, and figure out a reward system. So they would pay more attention to their own, the people they loan to in their own portfolio. And, and back then I was giving bonuses like two grand a month. And that was in uh, like you know the end of the nineties. You know what I mean? They they make 
they still make like eight bucks an hour, but they, you know, if they did the right collections and stuff, they get two grand. They still weren't happy, but at least, you know, they were making for for a person who working as a clerk in some little store. That was a lot of money, and uh, we were very, we were very successful. And then then the regulators came in and kind of killed it. But any small business has a has a cycle, you know, and they are usually about ten years, fifteen years tops and then something else comes in and kills it off you know even apple anything is gonna you know it's gonna go up and down yeah 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 i mean as technology advances we kind of need less things yeah i mean but a lot of new stuff shows up too because of the technology yeah and, and the most amazing thing is like i look at youtube like podcast stuff and you look at the numbers of uh, people, like I follow some from the inception, right? And like one year ago, they'll have, you know, you know, 300 views. And then all of a sudden, they're consistently getting 50,000 views. And so, you know, you probably did the math, you know, you can. And, and then the guy's got a Toyota Land Cruiser and stuff. He's just some goofball army, ex-army guy who married a young Filipina lady and, you know, he, he gets re- reflective. He's pretty good, you know, because he had some issues in the army. I think he got discharged for, he probably had a medical discharge or something. Oh, okay. And, uh, but he's doing good now. He's got a land cruiser and stuff. And I don't, it's hard to figure out where he gets his money, but, you know, <laughs> but he's getting it somewhere. You, know, you can't be successful doing it. Yeah. You never know. Uh, yeah. It's always weird, like, finding out where people make their riches from. Yeah, the sky's the limit, though. Yeah, you no, know, it is. Because even you, like, you, you can put things on different platforms, and, and there's an art to, you know, knowing which ones and what yeah. to put on there. No, 100%. But for um, you, what I do is I'd, I'd copy the ones that are most successful. I get on every day. I'd look at one. I'd say, how can I do that? And just start throwing stuff against the wall. And, like, a yeah, reaction yeah. video or whatever and uh, something that you're interested in you know yeah just copy what the other person's doing almost <laughs> verbatim you know <laughs> yeah sounds good man well i appreciate you coming on the the podcast it, it was good meeting you all right it's good meeting you i appreciate it and uh i hope uh you know i hope to see you again someday maybe in person well next year when i have more time him and i are going to be you know Hopping in the car and going camping and doing different things. Cool. All right. Sounds good, man. Well, thank you. All right. I'll put him back on for a minute, okay? Oh, oh, he says it's okay. Don't worry about it. All right. Sweet. All All right, right, buddy. See? Yeah, take it easy. Bye. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye.